This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have a very special episode. We're interviewing Mickey Tripathi, the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology with the ONC. The Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology is a staff division of the Office of the Secretary within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the ONC leads a national health IT effort charged with optimizing paths for health IT adoption and interoperability to support improved patient care experience, improved health outcomes for populations, and reduce per capita cost of healthcare. And this is a very important episode, and it's brought to you by Arcadia, a software platform dedicated to transforming big data into powerful insights. Recognized as best in class in value-based care managed services three years in a row, Arcadia partners with leading healthcare and life sciences organizations to improve care, maximize value, and take on some of the biggest challenges we face today. Eric, yeah, I'm really excited to share this interview with our listeners. Mickey Tripathi is a longtime proponent of advancing healthcare interoperability. And before taking the helm of the ONC a year ago, he was the chief alliance officer for Arcadia. Now in his leadership of the ONC, he's a driving force in the race to value, and there's no better person than Mickey Tripathi to lead the way. The ONC is addressing very important priorities for our industry right now. And we talked to Mickey about that today with such paramount priorities like the COVID-19 response in support of public health, aligning with federal partners, working to improve health equity, improving EHR and interoperability standards adoption, and renewing emphasis on implementing the 21st Century Cures Act Mickey's leadership is instrumental in improving the effectiveness and quality of our healthcare system. What I like most about Mickey is that he isn't a political technocrat. This is someone who up until a year ago spent his entire career outside of the government and inside the healthcare system. He knows how it works, how it doesn't work, and what we need to do to fix it with health IT and interoperability. Dan, I couldn't agree more. And before we hear from Mickey, 
I'd like to share an update from Mickey's former company, Arcadia, which is this week's sponsor of the Race to Value. Arcadia recently invited some of the nation's leading providers, practitioners, and analysts to explore how can we use data to improve the current and future state of healthcare. Topics included taking on risk, accessing on-demand insights, new approaches to care delivery, and so much more. And this series is now available on Arcadia's website. Visit arcadia.io forward slash the schema after today's interview to watch the first five episodes. Welcome, Mickey. It's so great to have you on the Race to Value podcast this week. It's truly an honor to have you on the show and speak about your important work there at the ONC. Thanks, Eric. I'm really delighted to be here. Well, Mickey, we've crossed paths a few times in your prior role at Arcadia, and I've always enjoyed our conversations because you're such a big thinker when it comes to big data. That being said, I thought we could start our conversation today by discussing the wide-reaching implications of data intelligence and value-based care. This is such a huge challenge for our industry. So I wanted you to think about this for for a moment. It's really just mind-blowing, but from the dawn of civilization until the early 2000s, humankind generated about five exabytes of data. And now fast forward to the modern day, and we produce about five exabytes of data every two days. And according to the World Economic Forum, the entire digital universe is expected to reach 44 zettabytes by 2020. And if that number is correct, that means there are going to be be about 40 times more bytes than there are stars in the observable universe. And I just can't help but think about this data explosion and what that means for the healthcare industry as it transitions to value. So, you know, let me get to the point here. You know, if we are to live in this future when the entire health system is aligned with improving outcomes. I mean, we need optimal business intelligence, and that doesn't come just from EHRs. We also need to leverage the entire data universe from the Internet of Things to financials, the claims to ADTs, credit scores. We really need to have the 360-degree view, and we not only have to build all these additional pipes, but we have to take data from EHRs which, as I understand, has about 80% of the health information sitting there as unstructured notes which is entirely unusable because it's not discrete. And the ONC recognizes the importance of big data in healthcare and has this vision for interoperable, private and secure nationwide health information systems. And, you know, it's supported by, of course, the work that's been done over the last few years with meaningful use of IT. And before we get into your work at the ONC, I'd like to get your perspective on how our listeners out there can just begin thinking more about how to get visibility into their data and analytics in order to transition from volume to value. Can you describe to our listeners how the healthcare industry should approach the challenges of creating actionable insights from data to ultimately improve population health outcomes? And how can we best leverage all the available data sources out there to really advance predictive analytics? Sure, happy to. And I don't even know how much a zettabyte is, so <laughs> thanks for thanks for pointing that out. I'll go look it up. But it's a lot of data, I think, as you pointed out. And I think you know one of the biggest challenges for us in in healthcare, in particular, is that we're data rich and increasingly data rich, but information poor. And how do we kind of bridge that gap? I think there's a you know a number of things to to consider there, and and it relates a little bit to fundamental. ONC goal here, which is to enable 
as much of access to data for authorized purposes as possible. So it's not, you know, to try to think about or focus interoperability toward particular types of solutions, but to say that with the kind of explosion of data you're talking about, the incredible march of technology and particular data science capabilities that's, you know, coupled both with knowledge and expertise, as well as, you know, exponential growth in computing power and the abilities to be able to do things with data once aggregated, you know, all of that suggests the need for having as much liquidity and fluidity of data as possible so that people can build the, you know, whatever applications they want to be able to build on top of it without having the quality of the data and the wrangling of the data being the biggest barrier to it. I just saw a, I was reading an article in the Boston Globe just this morning, interestingly, on the front page of the business section, which was talking about data and life sciences and the importance of, and how life sciences is just about to take off in terms of, you know, sort of the explosion of data that you were just talking about. And that was, it was more focused on life sciences from a, you know, pharma life sciences development perspective. But one of the things that they were talking about was the increasing competition for data science expertise. And in particular, what they talked about was how life sciences, and again, they were talking about life sciences, not necessarily healthcare delivery, but I think that what I'm about to say actually applies even more to healthcare delivery than it does to life sciences. What they were saying with respect to life sciences, and I think, as you know, Boston is a mecca for, you know, for the life sciences industry, is that they're increasingly facing um, huge competition for data science expertise. And in particular, um, competing with tech companies and the financial industry. And one of the things that they pointed out, um, and this is, a, this is a recruiter, I think, who, um, who said this, and I'm going to tweet this article and, and, and this quote, but uh, he said something like, the biggest challenge that we face in the life sciences industry in competing for data science people, well, he said there are two challenges. One is just a compensation differential. So whatever, that, that'll sort itself off in the market. Um, but the other is that he said that data scientists in the life sciences spend way too much time wrangling data and cleaning data. And he said, that is just a fundamental barrier to our being able to compete effectively for data scientists because data scientists don't want to spend all their time and effort wrangling data, meaning begging different sources for data, and then cleaning up really, really bad data. That's not what they want to spend their time doing. So anyway, I, th I think that that's you know, sort of just one fundamental, um, I think in, in a way conceptualizes part of the problem that we're trying to solve from an ONC perspective with respect to data and data access and data availability is how do we remove the barriers to authorized aggregation of data and what can we do to improve the quality of that data so that it's available for anyone to be able to do whatever it is that they need to do without having a preconception about what it is that they're trying to do because I don't want to have us be too focused on a particular use cases knowing that optionality is what we need to be able to provide to people. So one other just one other point on you know on this and, and related you know directly to your question on what can people do? You know, the most important thing right now, I think, from an from a perspective of value-based purchasing in provider organizations or anyone particip participating in the healthcare delivery system is to rethink the way they're thinking about access to data. And, and that's a two-way street. I would say providing access to data as well as getting access to data in light of the information blocking rules that stem from the 21st Century Cures Act. And those rules are very specific in terms of, you know, what they are signaling to the industry that are, you know, that, that is a new paradigm for information sharing. 
And that is to say that there is an obligation on the part of all parties to make data available and to make it available in ways that are industry standard where available, but not according to industry standards if that's not, if that's not available. But that's a, that's a real sea change. And that went into effect April 5th. And so, you know, even, and you reflected back in my, you know, my time with, with Arcadia, for any population health management vendor, for anyone who's thinking about data, being able to think about, wow, what does this new set of rules say about my ability or, you know, the obligation that others have to share information with me now, because it's different now, and there's a complaint process where, you know, where that friction exists, and the ability to get structured and unstructured data, which is a, a very important part of this. Um, which is to say that we are, from a philosophical perspective, we've said not only does structured data need to be made available, but also all the other information needs to be made available to other authorized parties in whatever format it's in. But I would just slightly quibble with one thing that you said, Eric, in the question, which is, and it was something about, you know, data is only valuable if it's structured. I would argue that that's not only is that not true today, but it's increasingly not true because of, you know, sort of the computing power, the algorithmic expertise and capabilities that exist now in the market and basically commodity terms that enables people to be able to do more and more with unstructured narrative type data. And that's, you know, specifically what our information blocking rules and everything is, is targeting, which is to say all of that information needs to be made available, even if it's not structured, because there's increasingly a market developing um, that will provide solutions for people to be able to do valuable things with that unstructured data. Mickey, you've outlined some pretty awesome things, and I, I love the goal of, of getting any authorized user of data to have access to that data. And, and something that goes along with this uh, that I think is a critical factor is we look to improve health outcomes in our country. It seems that healthcare is only one factor to consider. We know the United States has devoted vast resources to medical care to improve the nation's health, but medical care all too often emphasizes disease treatment rather than prevention. And it rarely addresses socioeconomic factors, physical environments that are strong predictors of health outcomes. The premise that 80 to 90% of a person's health is ultimately determined by social factors and environment is such a profound and challenging reality for us to consider in value-based care. I mean, truly the zip code in which you live has more impact on your health than having access to healthcare services. The implications of SDOH on health equity is huge since African-American, Hispanic, and Native American communities have long experienced wide gaps in household income and household wealth. And CMS Administrator Chiquita brooks Lashure has been quite vocal about efforts to tackle health inequities and better understand the social determinants of health through value-based care. And I know you've also been outspoken about leveraging health IT for the same purpose. Can you describe this concept of health equity by design where SDOH can be a core feature of health IT. What is the ONC doing to create a more robust SDOH data exchange to give providers a well-rounded view of the conditions that may be impacting patient health and well-being, and allow for more targeted interventions? Is this idea of health equity by design a core construct that we can inculcate in the entire industry by rethinking HIT and population health programs? Yeah, thanks for that. In answer to your last question, I'm not sure. I hope so. <laughs> but we're doing everything to try to make that a reality. The idea, you know, of health equity by design, which is still very much a concept that we're, you know, that we're trying to flesh out. But the, you know, but the idea 
which I, th I think will be familiar to, you know, to many listeners, is based on other core design kind of principles and constructs that, that I think people are familiar with in software design and business process design, like safety by design and security by design and privacy by design. All of them basically about saying that some things are so important and so fundamental to everything that, you know, that a solution that we're trying to put in place is, is trying to accomplish, that they need to be baked in from the start as key considerations so that you're not inadvertently painting yourself into a corner because you don't have the ability to rectify issues that happen downstream or that, you know, to the greatest extent possible, you're not, you don't have sort of a slew of unintended consequences that you're not even aware of and that only become aware or have visibility or surface themselves years down the road, let's say, and therefore harder and harder to rectify. So, you know, what we're working on is you know, this concept of, you know, by design is a, is a couple of dimensions right now as we're thinking about it. Um, and I, I like to broadly divide it into two categories. One is data, and then the other is about mitigation or, you know, or actions. And so the data part is related to, and this is all very much within, you know, sort of the constraints of thinking about what does ONC have influence over versus, you know, areas that we just, you know, may not have influence over. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's true for health IT in general. We're only part of the value chain. So we want to be able to recognize that as well. There are, there are lots of issues that, for example, Chiquita Lachera-Brooks has, you know, authority over at CMS that are much broader than what ONC has. And conversely, obviously we have authorities that, you know, that they don't have. So, um, you know, we're trying to sort of say what, within the realm of health IT, what are the things that can be important contributors that health IT can, you know, can make to helping with health equity? And then within that domain, what are the things that ONC can actually influence? Because, you know, as much as we like to pretend that we influence all of health IT, we recognize that, you know, we only play some part in influencing, you know, sort of the trajectory of, of health IT in, in, in the market. You know, so now getting back to the, you know, the, the data and the in kind of the mitigation and actions, the data part is, you know, just that fundamental recognition that unless we have good data on identifying appropriate communities, you know, who perhaps may be, you know, may be suffering from inequities that lead to healthcare outcome disparities, we don't even have the ability to do anything. We don't have the ability to identify who those communities are, let alone try to, you know, sort of figure out what are the appropriate types of mitigation steps to be able to address those inequities. And so, you know, right now we have a lot of heterogeneity in the market about how that data is collected and, and by whom. You know, you have some places that collect data just in the categories of what we call the OMB5, which is the five categories that are required by OMB for, you know, across the federal government. And then you have all the way at the other end of the spectrum, ONC requirements in electronic health record systems that the electronic health record systems support the full CDC data set for a capture of race, ethnicity, language, for example. I'm sorry, I should have pointed out, I'm talking specifically about race, ethnicity, language um, with respect to the OMB5 and the um, CDC data set. And so ONC requirements are that the EHR vendor um, support the capture of the full CDC data set, which is 900 plus categories. So you've got five from ONB to 900 plus from the CDC. And the reality is that what we see in the market is everything in between. You have, uh, because ONC doesn't have the authority to require that providers meaningfully use the CDC data set, the only levers we have are the levers on the EHR vendors to require that they support the CDC data set but providers, you know, and other EHR users can do whatever they want with respect to, you know, what they populate. And so that's created a ton of heterogeneity in the capture of that data. It's, you know, inconsistent. 
and you know relatively unreliable. Some of it related to the you know the technology aspects of it and the implementation. Some of it related to you know the difficulty, the workflow difficulty of being able to capture that data. And you know as we know, it can be an awkward conversation for a frontline staff person to be trying to get more granular or detailed race ethnicity language from an individual who's presenting. Um, so there's you know certainly that friction. And then, as I said, there's the, you know, all the other workflow stuff and the technology stuff that happens, you know, in the background. The, on the activity side, there's, you know, the question of how do I intervene or have mechanisms to intervene more upstream to be able to head off or dampen health inequities that may be uh, created further upstream. And that's where we get firmly into the social determinants of health category in particular, specifically into the connection with social services. So... For example, you know, we have a pilot that we've launched um, with the University of Texas at Austin that we announced, I think, in August for them to work on um, referrals to social services agencies in the same way that one would refer a patient to a cardiologist, for example, out of their EHR system. So, you know, not only do you have the information in your system about, you know, the social determinants of health information about a, an individual perhaps needing um, having housing insecurity or food insecurity but perhaps the ability within your EHR system to be able to refer them for housing assistance, for example, or for food assistance, for example, in the same way that you would for cardiology. So that takes you one step further into, you know, into saying I can actually take active steps, not only just collecting the data that this person has, you know, these kinds of issues that are undoubtedly affecting their health at a, at a broader level, but you know, also the ability to perhaps do something about it. Related to what are the things that would be, you know, kinds of uh, further actions that we can take. So one thing in data, for example, we're now starting to think about and, you know, working with our federal HHS partners on how do we have better consistency of capture of race, ethnicity, language data? Because, you know, it, it varies across the federal agencies. And on the one hand, it's fantastic that, you know, with this administration and, you know, certainly one reason I joined this administration is uh, focused on things like health equity. It's fantastic that every agency in the government is now focused on this. It also is the, the other side of that sword is that different agencies might be off in their zeal using approaches that aren't aligned with the other federal agencies. So we may have, you know, inconsistency in the capture of race, ethnicity, language data across agencies. So if you think about HHS, for example, you've got NIH collecting data from EHRs and from other sources. You've got CMS collecting member data as well as clinical data. And then you've got, you know, the CDC collecting clinical data from public health systems, ultimately some of which derive from EHR systems. So all of those um, you have different agencies, and that's just a small snapshot of kind of, you know, information that's being collected through existing programs. You know, how do we get better consistency across those to make the, you know, the friction much lower and to give us a better perspective on, you know, where there are issues. One last thing then, uh, let me just tie this back then to the concept of health equity by design. So we're starting to, you know, look at those things and then give greater thought to what is this by design kind of idea? And, and in some ways, I feel like I know more about what it's not than I'm able to specifically say what it is. <laughs> and, and let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean by that. And sometimes that's the best way to approach something, right? It's like, well, I, I can give you examples where health equity was not a design consideration, and that led to problems. And if I have enough of those examples, that can kind of point me to what might be policy directions that we can take to prevent these kinds of errors in the, in, in the future. So one, one area, for example, is as I, as I described, you know, we have the race, ethnicity, language, you know, the CDC data set requirement on EHR vendors to support the full CDC data set. I will submit to you, I am 99% sure that this is true, that the EHR vendors 
probably spent a thousand times more effort thinking about the workflow associated with billing than they did about the workflow associated with capturing race, ethnicity, language, according to 900 categories. And so if you have a system where they basically said, well, I can, I have to meet this requirement. How do I meet that requirement? Click on race, ethnicity, language, and it gives you a drop-down list of 900 categories. I think we'd all agree that that's probably not real usable, <laughs> and then you're probably not going to get a whole lot of use on it. On the other hand, if some time was spent on a user interface that made that you know much more friendly and indeed incorporated the patient's perspective and perhaps the ability for the patient to self-identify in easy ways, maybe that would lower the barrier to being able to capture that data, both on the patient side as well as on the provider side. So, you know, so that's one example of, you know, where we don't have, didn't have design considerations um, from the get-go. Another very quick example that I'll give, and it relates to, I think, you know, value-based purchasing as we think about, you know, the aggregation of data across systems. One of the things that I myself encountered when I uh, ran the Massachusetts Health Collaborative um, in Massachusetts, we launched a uh, statewide event notification service to support Medicaid ACOs that had been recently launched and had all sorts of requirements related to getting data across the care continuum on the individual patients that, that might have been assigned to a particular ACO. And they were required to use event notification systems. And so they we were approached by a group of uh, ACOs to launch one that would be, you know, sort of a nonprofit alternative to some of the for-profit systems that were out there. So anyway, we launched this event notification system. It worked really well, covered, you know, well over 70% of all encounters in the state. After a little while, we, and we had done a ton of diligence and work on the patient matching algorithm and had gone through all the technical folks and, you know, had been validated and vetted by the you know, by, by the CIO organizations of a number of the hospital systems. And, um, and so we launched it, we were in production. We were approached later by one of the safety net hospitals that pointed out that because our uh, matching algorithm focused so much, gave so much weight in the algorithm to home address that a number of their patients were not getting matched because in the safety net hospital, housing insecurity was a big issue. So they had a lot of people who were churning with respect to their, you know, their, their home address. And we had no idea. And so, you know, the, and the consequence of that wasn't a negative consequence. It was the lack of a positive consequence, which meant that a lot of patients um, were not getting the data matched up. And therefore, the opportunity wasn't there for the ACO to be able to provide the kind of, you know, the better kind of care management services they wanted to provide to those patients because they weren't getting those matches. And so we adjusted the algorithm. We put in a couple of other things and the matches um, improved dramatically. Yet another example, I think, of, you know, if we in the Basile Collaborative had thought about this from a health equity perspective, I think we would have walked ourselves through saying, wait a minute, there are communities who have insecurity around some of the core data of our matching algorithm. That's going to present a problem. How do we address that, you know, before it's too late and before we miss those opportunities? It's a great response, Mickey. And I, I just, there's so much thinking about health equity by design and how we're going to build this HIT infrastructure to support the future and mitigate the potentiality for some of these uh, disparities. So I, I, I'm just so excited to hear about all this. And I wanted to get some more information around what the ONC is doing to push for information exchange to support value-based purchasing. I mean, back in June, you gave uh, the keynote at the Direct Trust Summit and you were quoted as saying value-based care is critically important and it is a key driver of interoperability. And we need to move from basic information exchange to apps that will use the whole portfolio of interoperability capabilities. 
Well, it, it seems, Mickey, that if we are to move towards a richer information exchange and supportive alternative payment models, this will require RESTful APIs and interactions to integrate CDS support between EHR systems and external clinical decision support applications. And as I understand, FIRE has had considerable success in building an ecosystem of apps that can be plugged into a variety of EHR systems, but the clinician still needs to know which app to use and when. For example, if you're dosing a drug based on a patient's genotype, then you have to invoke the app and while you're making the prescription. And you know, during your keynote last summer, you referenced HL7 specification called CDS hooks that integrates clinical decision support in the workflow of the EHR. And CDS hooks basically, as I understand, helps clinicians at the point of care by running checks automatically ahead of time and, and then providing CDS information within the context of the EHR workflow. And I'm really interested in how this advanced clinical decision support and value-based care can curate relevant insights from these disparate sources and deliver them in real time so clinicians and care teams can be better supported by this enhanced interoperability. So Mickey, I have two questions for you just on this concept of information exchange. First, just generally speaking, can you explain how value-based care is a key driver of interoperability? And then the second question, how do you think semantic interoperability between clinical decision support systems and other health information systems will catalyze value-based care by enhancing the availability of clinical information and decision logic? Sure. Oh, great question. Thank you. You know, I think there are multiple levels to this, but let me start with, you know, the value-based care question. I just, at the end of the day, I think that, you know, that the only real driver for interoperability is the business case. If you don't have the business case, then you just don't get interoperability. It's, it's really hard to tell people you must share when they don't see a business interest. There's nothing that incents them to share. And so, you know, and I, again, in my experience, you know, working in the market, I'd seen, you know, just so many organizations who literally flipped their attitude overnight from the time that they were living in the fee-for-service world to when they signed an, let's say, an MSSP ACO contract with CMS. And almost, you know, it'd be like overnight. These are organizations who I've been working with, you know, for years. And then they'd sign an MSSP contract and I'd be getting, you know, phone calls about, you know, we need to build this interoperability system. We need to build this, you know, and I'm like, wow, you know. <laughs> We've been talking about this for years. They're like, well, where is my interoperability? And it's because they had the business case all of a sudden. They had the business case that instead of telling them, you know, you must participate in this HIE or you must connect to this, it basically said to them, you're responsible for this group of patients and ultimately for the quality of the care that's delivered to them. And it wasn't a huge mental leap for them to say, how can I possibly do that? If I don't have information from the encounters that the patient has had, and if I don't have information from the specialist visits that they, you know, that they had, and don't have the ability to aggregate that information, run the analytics on it, understand who's high risk, understand who's lower risk, um, and then be able to bring the right resources to bear to meet the patient where they are to get them to take the steps that they need to be able to take and their providers need to be able to take to ultimately provide them with a much more high quality, lower cost, or at least equal cost healthcare situation. So that you know, to me is just fundamental that we need to keep keep moving forward in, in value-based care. And if, if, we, if we continue to live in fee-for-service, 
it just doesn't provide enough incentive for people to make information sharing and interoperability a high enough priority. And I use that term very specifically because I certainly, you know, we have our information blocking rule and it does, you know, it does have a set of requirements and their compliance requirements. I and ONC do not believe that everyone is a presumed information blocker until they're proven innocent. <laughs> we actually, again, I lived in the market for 20 years and, you know, and, and lived on the ground with, with provider organizations and with vendors. And, you know, my experience and my deep experience there is that it's a question of priorities. That if you live in a world where interrupt is not a, a driver of what you do every day, you're just going to make it lower priority than you are with all the other demands that are placed on you as a provider organization, which ultimately is about the safety and quality of care that you're delivering to patients. So I think that this is, you know, got to have multiple levers to it. One is that we need to be able to say, all right, we've got this compliance floor. There is minimum, there are minimum expectations now of, you know, what it is to share information and your obligation to share that information. But at the end of the day, people will just treat that as a compliance thing, which means that they will just do what I like and hate to call minimum viable compliance, which is they'll just do the bare minimum they need to do to be compliant with what the law or the regulation says. What makes them really lean into it and actually do it, not because they're compelled to, not because they're required to, but because they're incented to or they're compelled to by business drivers is value-based care at the end of the day. So that's you know kind of the first overarching point. And then with respect to what are the kinds of mechanisms that can help enable that? And what, you know, what's ONC doing there? You know, we're sort of operating on multiple fronts here, which is to say, we've got all of the work that we're doing on TEFCA, the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement, which is about network interoperability. And one of the things that, you know, that you may observe if you've ever looked into what's going on at the networks, either at the nationwide networks like Commonwealth, Care Quality, eHealth Exchange, or HIEs and state and regional HIEs, is that while they are making a lot of progress and they've done tremendous amount of work, um, given that, you know, that it's really been market driven, they've also started to, you know, encounter considerable friction in moving forward with enabling the kinds of use cases, the kinds of capabilities that are desperately needed for value-based care. And so some of those use cases are the ability for payers and population health management vendors and others to be able to, you know, business associates of providers who are engaged in accountable care, allowing them to have access to those networks for the purposes of not of treatment, but of the payment operations piece of that, which is, of course, how we operate, you know, in the, in the value-based purchasing world um, by enabling those kinds of capabilities under payment and operations. Right now, those networks don't allow that kind of participation. I should say they, they allow it, but they don't actually adopt it or fully embrace it because of the business competition of the, of the existing players who, you know, who, who basically drive those networks. And so one of the things that ONC is very focused on with TEFCA is saying that if we want the government presence in network interoperability, which is a requirement from, from 21st Century Cures Act, to break open that model to allow for population health value-based purchasing use cases to be core, you know, sort of constituents, core users of these networks to, you know, in addition to the treatment use cases, and we want to open it up to public health as well as other use cases, but since we're focused on value-based purchasing here, that's a huge part of it. And so going back to, you know, when I worked in this world, you know, we spent inordinate amounts of time building connectors to EHR vendors. And every single project was new connectors, new HL7 interfaces, new CCDA interfaces, new, you know, other kinds of interfaces starting to get into APIs. But, you know, again, that's still, that's still somewhat nascent. And each of those was a cost that was 
passed through the system and that was borne by the entire system. If every single one of these you know, organizations that are trying to do accountable care is having to build separate interfaces to each one of these vendors and each one of these you know, provider organizations, that cost then just becomes a cost that's passed through the system and drives up cost of care overall, in addition to creating a huge amount of friction that leaves some information sharing on the, on the table, frankly, because people don't want to pay for it or they feel like they can't pay for it. So what we want to be able to do with the network participation is say, these organizations ought to be able to just participate in the networks and get that information as a part of a commodity pipe. And that will enable the flow of information for them to be able to aggregate it in much easier ways than they're able to today. With respect to fire APIs, that's kind of a complement to that network capability, which is to say that we want networks as like a backend B2B type of exchange function that's for high volume, high reliability, high scale exchange of information that just happens in the background, like claims processing. It just happens. And you want that to be able to happen with clinical information as well. With, the, with respect to APIs and fire APIs in particular, that enables the richer use cases. They might be a little bit more one-on-one -on -one or might have richer types of, of interactions patterns like, like CDS hooks um, and other kinds of patterns. And we'll talk about bulk fire in a second, but you wanna be able to have that as a complement to what the networks enable to be able to have these more fine grained use cases. So that's why the ONC rules, you know, focus on, um, in addition to, you know, what we're doing with TEFCA, the ONC rules related to the 21st Century Cures Act, focus on the requirement that a specific implementation of fire API be made available by all the EHR systems and the providers who are using those EHR systems. That's according to a specific implementation guide, because that's not a requirement right now. The APIs that exist out in the market today have to meet a functional requirement, but not a specific technical requirement. And that's created some friction. I mean, it's moved us forward. There's a lot of APIs available now out in the market. And, you know, we have done some research that shows that the four EHR vendors that have app stores today have something like approaching 800 different apps available on those stores. So that's great progress. What we also observed is that fewer than half of those apps are fire-based. You know, it doesn't matter one way or the other from a functional perspective. The reason it does matter though, is that if each of those, you know, if you have a lot of those that are kind of custom APIs or proprietary APIs, that's a barrier, creates a lot of friction to the development of a vibrant app ecosystem. So the type of vendors who would come in and create really cool CDS hooks types of applications, for example, if they have to build, you know, according to with vendor one using their proprietary API and then adjust it to vendor two for that proprietary API and then, you know, re, you know overhaul it for vendor three for their proprietary API, that just means that they don't have the economics to support the kind of, you know, scalable solutions that we want to be able to have across the entire ecosystem. So the ONC rule focuses on putting that into place by the end of 2022, so they have to meet a particular fire specification that is a requirement. So I think we will expect to see more opportunity there for a com more competitive marketplace of vendor solutions that will step in now that they see the economics of it, you know, working in their favor to be able to have that scalability. And then, uh, and then a part of that fire requirement is also for bulk fire, which specifically addresses use cases where you want to get information on more than one patient and on a roster of patients, which of course is a core value-based purchasing type of uh, scenario where I am an accountable care organization. I've hired a population of management vendor with that particular provider organization. I have 183 members who are risk patients in my accountable care organization roster. I want to be able to get information on the 183 patients, not 
one patient at a time using an API counting up to 183 for all sorts of reasons. And so the, the requirement that we have is for a bulk fire implementation as well that requires that EHR vendors support that. Getting back to this motivational question though, is that you know ONC can require that the vendors have a fire API both for an individual uh, patient as well as for a bulk fire application, but ONC has no ability to require that providers use those APIs. All it can do is require that an EHR vendor support them. And that's where we get into the value-based care being the business imperative, that we need to have more and more like with our partners in CMS as well as commercial payers telling providers, you know, you are required to form a set of things that you can only get to through better interoperability. And if you can only get to it through interoperability, that will create the demand for bulk fire, for CDS hooks, for all that other stuff that hopefully they'll be able to build in much easier ways than they are today because of the foundation that ONC has required be available across EHR systems. Mickey, thank you for sharing that. I think you've covered some of what my next question is going to talk to, but I'd love to hear your additional responses. I'd like to learn more about ONC's federal IT roadmap and its overall vision for interoperability. In January 2020, your first month on the job, the ONC released a five-year roadmap called the 2020-2025 Federal Health IT Strategic Plan that was developed with input from more than two dozen other agencies. And much of the roadmap focuses on allowing patients, providers, and researchers to share data through application programming interfaces or APIs. And the technology that underpins data exchange with various types of apps. In May this year, the ONC announced a new initiative called Health Interoperability Outcomes 2030 that comes on the heels of that ONC's five-year IT strategic plan. And the latest initiative is designed to identify aspirational yet achievable interoperability goals for the industry to rally around over the next decade. As I understand, the ONC received over 700 submissions that helped you create a set of synthesized outcome statements for 2030 operability. Can you tell us more about the ONC's Health Interoperability Outcomes 2030 initiative and how that helped prioritize that set of interoperability outcomes? And how do those aspirational outcome goals align with the ONC's interoperability vision for the nation and the 2020 to 2025 Federal Health IT Strategic Plan. The Federal Health IT Strategic Plan is something that ONC helps to you know, coordinate on a regular basis. So ONC works with you know, all of our federal partners as, as the lead agency for coordination of health IT activities across the federal government to put together the strategic plan, which we publish on a periodic basis. And that's very much a coordination activity and facilitation activity across the different federal agencies. As we've seen over the, you know, for the last few years, there is increasing engagement involvement across the federal agencies with capabilities that ultimately um, lead them to connection with EHR systems. And I think that's, you know, sort of a blessing and a curse of all of the hard work that we've done over the last 10 years. Um, and by the last 10 years, what I mean is, you know, with the passage of high tech under, uh, you know, President Obama um, and Vice President Biden, in you know, 2010, that led, I think, as you know, as everyone uh, will recall, with meaningful use, led to what is now over 40 billion dollars just on the public side 
on the taxpayer side of incentives to provider organizations to implement electronic health records. And of course, on the private side, there were equal, if not more investments made by providers and technology vendors and others. So as a country, we've invested a tremendous amount of you know, money and effort in creating the foundation of electronic health record systems that we have today, um, to the point that now it's you know, over 95% of providers you know, across the country, hospitals and ambulatory providers are using um, certified electronic health record systems, whereas uh, you know, 10 years ago, um, which is a relatively short time in many ways, especially for a, a sector of the economy that's probably the most complex sector of, of the US economy, you know, only 10 years ago, it was reversed. It was something like 10% of providers had electronic health records rather than you know, the 95% that we have today. So once we have that foundation laid with a lot of hard work, now you see federal agencies who are starting to say, hey, you know, we need, um, and of course, with, you know, Eric led off our discussion here with the talk of, you know, with, with the, the discussion of data explosion and the, you know, sort of the abilities to be able to aggregate information and do all sorts of things with data, you're starting to see federal agencies who, you know, are also doing that. And EHR systems are a, you know, a, a huge opportunity for many of those agencies to be able to use that information in appropriate ways, obviously, um, to be able to further their missions in ways that they weren't able to before. And the reason I say that's a blessing and a curse is a blessing because that's what we wanted to be able to do. That's why we spent all of that time and all of those resources was to be able to have that foundation of EHR systems so that we could actually get to the next chapter, right? I think all of us would agree that we didn't uh, spend all of that time and all of that effort to have better billing systems and, you know, reduction of paper. If that was going to be the promise at the end of the day, none of us would have invested all that time and effort. The time and effort was invested so that we could start to do the advanced kinds of things that we want to be able to do with those systems, which is like CDS hooks, like being able to have that kind of, you know, interoperability within systems, like being able to aggregate that information from all these disparate sources to be able to get a much better perspective on what's going on down at the, you know, the bottom of the food chain than we were able to in a paper-based world. So federal agencies are doing that. The curse side of that is that the federal agencies are doing that. And without alignment and coordination across the agencies, we create a number of other problems that need to be rectified, which is to say that we have different approaches to you know, the extraction of information or the, the standards that are used to be able to get that information. And then we have the issue of you know, the market being confused or feeling a lot of friction or being frustrated by the fact that one agency is asking for data in one way and another agency is asking for it a different way. And then they have ONC certification, which you know, coupled with, with uh, CMS uh, payment programs is asking for data in a very different way. But that is kind of what the federal health IT strategic plan is, is supposed is, is trying to accomplish, which is to say, what are all the things we want to do across the federal government? How do we get better identification of what those are? And then processes and forums for us to be able to have the discussion about how we can have better alignment of our uses of, uh, of health IT within the federal government and, and in the market. And how can the how can the federal government be a better market actor to be able to model and you know motivate good citizenship? With respect to health IT and the data ecosystem we're trying to create. And so what does, you know, what does that mean? That means that in our activities, not just from a regulatory perspective, but from just our day-to-day -day activities in the market, you know, how do we do things like base things on open industry standards, like um, have better coordination across the federal agencies. So we're all aligning with the regulations that are in place and with the open industry standards that are in place today. With making data available as much as possible with the appropriate privacy and security protections, obviously, in a forward-leaning way, rather than in a overly cautious 
or siloed kind of way that doesn't um, you know, sort of recognize the, the opportunities that come from just making data available. Those are all the things that, you know, that, that, that we try to work on with the uh, Federal Health IT Strategic Plan. As it relates to the 2030 interoperability outcomes, that's a little bit, uh, you know, what we did there is we decided we take a little bit of a different approach that, you know, you may recall we had the interoperability roadmap that came from ONC. I think it might have been published in 2014, 2015. I obviously was in the market then. I wasn't at ONC, but I, you know, did track it at the time. And that was, you know, that was very much a roadmap type of process, which is, you know, very similar to how federal agencies um, kind of think of a roadmap or even, you know, how the many private sector companies, when they, you know, decide on, all right, we're going to create a strategic roadmap. Now let's go into the full process of vision, strategy, organization, in developing short-term objectives, medium-term objectives, long-term objectives, and getting stakeholder reach out, but all of it with a, you know, very specific eye toward developing like a strategic framework. And as we, you know, sort of sunsetted that, as you may have seen in the blog that I think Steve Posnack published on Health IT Buzz, um, you know, one of the things that we decided is we're not going to now start a new roadmap type of process like that. What we're going to do is let's think about a little bit of a crowdsourcing sort of approach to, you know, interoperability pulse check. And that's, you know, the interoperability outcomes as we started to look at, you know, so it was really an idea to say, let's take more a pulse of the market. What are the kinds of things? And, and, you know, and we thought, you know, how do we also make it fun and a little bit more lightweight as well? And in a way that, you know, that makes people, that allows people to have fun with it, be creative with it, but also, you know, drive real meaning from it in really intuitive ways, like in their day-to-day lives, what should interoperability be? Not with, you know, the perspective of, you know, I'm an HL7 and here's how I view the world from an informatics perspective. And so we got a ton of inputs, I think, you know, up to a thousand, I forget, uh, Kevin would know the exact number. We got a ton of inputs for in all different ways. We got videos, we got tweets, we got um, emails, we got a you know, whole bunch, and then, and then the portal entries. And so what we've done with that, and that's available on our website, is we've said, you know, we're not going to try to turn that into a specific roadmap. You know, our thought right now, and we welcome people's input, is to say, let's have that be, you know, sort of a demonstration or a representation or a synthesis of market sentiment today, which is to say that, you know, the market sentiment today, if they look out ahead at 2030, seems to be around this set of things, you know, get rid of faxes and, you know, more seamless interoperability. And there's some specific things that, you know, that I can't remember all of them, but they're they're laid out in our website there where we've tried to give both the raw data as well as our synthesis of that to be able to, you know, in that crowdsourcing sort of way, just say, what is the market sentiment on interoperability and where would they like us to be in 2030? And the idea now is, you know, to say, how do we take that to do two things? One is, you know, help inform our thinking around strategic imperatives that we have, like, you know, what we're talking about with Tefka and our approach to API and our ultimate approach of saying, let's have the, a competitive ecosystem based on platform economics be the foundation of, you know, how our health IT sort of infrastructure and ecosystem works in the future. You know, how does that inform that? But also, how is it something that we can periodically check in on? So, you know, what if we do another, you know, health IT interoperability outcomes, you know, sort of reach out in a couple of years and see, has market sentiment changed, you know, from the past as a way of just sort of saying, you know, where is the market on this? And what are the things the market finds important? Because I, you know, will almost guarantee you, you know, if we had done the same thing five years ago, it would be really fascinating to see what the difference is. I think people wouldn't be taught, wouldn't have been talking about APIs or like Eric's question on CDS hooks. Those are things that, you know, just wouldn't have even come up. And so I think it's, you know, sort of an interesting way for us to be able to get information on where the market is in a way that's also, you know, kind of fun. Well, hey, Mickey, I wanted to revisit Tefka. You referenced it several times during the interview. And you know, just for our listeners out there, as a reminder, this is the trusted exchange framework and common agreement 
which is basically the nationwide interoperability governance structure that's going to help scale interoperability by standardizing legal and technical requirements. Yeah, Mickey, you talked about the goal of TEFCA is to establish this floor of universal interoperability across the country and creating an infrastructure model and governing approach for users in different networks to securely share basic clinical information with each other. And it's all under this agreed upon expectation with rules. And I know work started on this back in August, 2019, when the ONC awarded a cooperative agreement to the Sequoia project to serve as a recognized coordinating entity or RCE to administer a new nationwide network based on this common agreement. And since then, the ONC and the RCE have worked together to gather industry-wide stakeholder input and draft and refine the approach to establishing this new nationwide health information exchange across these uh, different information networks. And it really seems that TEFCA right now is all the buzz right now in health IT. And as I understand, there's going to be uh, in Q1 2022, the ONC is going to drop the the network in terms of opening it up for participation. And I mean, I know public health is going to be a big part of this as the f- a first tier customer for this new interoperability network in order to support the current pandemic response. And so I just wanted you maybe to provide an update on just some of the work being done with the Trusted Exchange Network and National Interoperability Governance, you know, something that maybe uh, you wanted to mention that you haven't already referenced. And then also, I just wanted to ask you as well, you know, how is TEFCA going to support both public health and population health within the context of value-based care in the long term? Imagine a world where we had cell phone networks, nationwide cell phone networks that overlapped in their geographic coverage, but weren't connected. So in particular, imagine a world where AT&T and T-Mobile and Verizon exist as they exist today, but weren't connected with each other. So if I wanted to call you, Eric, I use AT&T. If I I wanted to call you, I would have to know whether you're on AT&T or not. Imagine that there was some interoperability, but it varied by the agreements that were made by each of those partners. So let's say between Verizon and AT&T, you can text, but you couldn't call. And between Verizon and T-Mobile, you could call, but you couldn't text. And between T-Mobile and AT&T, you could do both, but you would have to like figure that out. There'd be some way that you would have to like know, oh, he's on, okay, I can only text him, I can call her, but I could do either with them. So that's a little bit of the world that we live in today with interoperability networks. So you've got some great fully functioning networks, well-functioning networks like, you know, Care Quality, Commonwealth, eHealth Exchange, and, you know, some state systems that, you know, that have been in place and that have been, you know, doing a ton of great stuff like in Colorado and New York and Rhode Island and, um, you know, in a number of states where, you know, where they exist. But they, they have imperfect they either have no connectivity, so there are a number of the state and regional HIEs that aren't connected to anything else, or they have what I would call imperfect connectivity which is to say they have exchange of CCDAs, but in fairly narrow band, you know, for treatment purposes among providers and that's it, which is what I, what I alluded to, to before. So what we're doing with Tefka is saying, let's help the market move forward. Let's not replace what the market has done because the market has made a tremendous amount of progress. And I was very involved with that before I joined the federal government with, you know, I was on the board of the Sequoia project and on the board of you know, Commonwealth and worked very closely with, you know, with a number of state agencies, with a number of state HIEs as well. So, you know, very familiar with those organizations. And so they've made tremendous progress. And, and, and the idea is to say, how do we have TEFCA open doors for them that were difficult for them to open on their own? 
um, because they're trying to do it just from a market-based perspective. But if we can have the federal government come in and help to open those doors to say, you know, you've got to go through these doors, you've got to keep moving forward, that provides the opportunity for us to be able to say, let's have closer and closer to that kind of fully functional interoperability that I was describing before, you know, analogously, so that, you know, whether I'm on AT&T or Verizon or T-Mobile, I know I can text, I know I can call, I know I, you know, can have you know sort of data data um, exchange via internet. Um, I can do all of those things, and I actually don't need to know which cell phone system you're on. So that's what Tufka is, you know, focusing on, on accomplishing. And the uniform, you know, the, the uniform floor idea of that is to say we want to be able to broaden it to more users who have been closed out of that kind of exchange today. So I talked about payers. And value-based purchasing organizations, you know, before that's one, you know, very important use case that we need to, you know, make sure that they are able to participate on equal terms. Um, I will say, since you know this audience is focused on, um, you know, is, is a value-based purchasing and accountable care community, one of the things that I have stressed is that payer participation should be a two-way street as well. Um, and, and what I mean by that is um, that payers um, have an authorized and, you know, and, and legitimate right to be able to get clinical information for on their members for them to be able to perform their functions. They you know, come from being a, a payer organization, and if they're involved in managed care and other aspects of you know, care management, that's great. They are authorized to get that information, and they, and they should have the easiest access to be able to get that information. They also have an obligation to make claims data available to the providers and the accountable care organizations who need that claims data to be able to do with it what they're going to do to help improve the quality and safety and efficiency and affordability of care. And they're, that they're authorized to do, but right now they get that information very sparingly, very cumbersome, unwieldy modes, and very and, and unstandardized in lots of different ways. I mean, I know from having worked in that world, the claims data was often at least as bad, if not worse, than the, cl than the clinical data that we got in, you know, working for, for a variety of different companies there. So that to me is an important, you know, part of what Tufka can help to enable, just to say the inducement of saying, here's what you get for joining, but you have a duty to respond with information as well to make sure it's a two-way street. And then public health is the other key constituent there. And I like to say, you know, the public health needs to sit at the adult table of interoperability as well. One of the things that we saw during the pandemic is that public health agencies didn't have access to clinical information in easy, commoditized ways. And they often had to jump through many, many, many hoops, um, you know, the, some of them legal HIPAA-related types of hoops to be able to get access to the basic information that's available, you know, every single day on these networks. Um, and, you know, we need to rectify that. If, you know, if, we've, if the pandemic hasn't taught us anything, hopefully it's taught us the importance of public health and the, the, the need for us to be able to have public health with appropriate safeguards to be able to access clinical information when they need it in order to be able to perform the public health functions that, you know, that benefit all of us. Mickey, let's go a little bit deeper into the information blocking and implementation of the 21st Century CARES Act. You've referenced this earlier in our conversation, but for our listeners out there, the 21st Century CARES Act is the legislation enacted in 2016 that, among other things, defined interoperability and prohibited information blocking. As our listeners know quite well, information blocking is such a challenge because it interferes with or prevents access to electronic health information. The information about a patient's medical history or treatment, just like you referenced with the public health uh, departments. 
the compliance deadline for the information blocking rule was more than six months ago. And I know many providers are still figuring out how to navigate the rule. CMS has not yet provided clarity about the potential penalties that could be imposed upon providers for non-compliance. And the OIG has not finalized its proposed penalties for certified EHR vendors and health information exchanges. Can you speak to the current status of the 21st Century Cures Act implementation with regard to information sharing regulations? Why is information blocking such a critical focus for ONC in achieving interoperability and facilitating information exchange? And how do these information sharing regulations fit into the overall federal vision for getting consumers more involved in healthcare decision-making? Sure. Um, the, you know, the 21st Century Cures Act, um, which, you know, feels like it was so long ago now, it's coming on five years um, when we get to, you know, December, we're almost in December. We're not in December yet, but it, it was passed in December of 2016. So that'll be five years. And, um, you know, and it, it um, had very strong bipartisan support. Um, and I know that, feels alien to, you know, to many people um, these days, uh, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, I think we're, we're slowly being able to rectify that. But, you know, but uh, that obviously is, you know, um, uh, you know, sort of a, a real hallmark of the, you know, kind of support that, you know, that it had, that it had very strong bipartisan support in both the, you know, both the House and the Senate, um, uh, you know, and, and of course was signed by President Obama in 2016. So the, you know, the, the core, some of the core constructs of that was that, um, individuals, uh, patients should be able to access it, their information through an API uh, without special effort. Was in the without special effort was a direct quote from uh, you know from that uh, from the law. And uh, the other thing that uh, that the law um, you know sort of specified is really a paradigm shift in the way we think about um, information availability, which is to say that you know in a in a purely HIPAA um, you know kind of world. Um, it's really, you know, kind of a permission-based sort of approach, which is to say that, um, you know, HIPAA says that, uh, that, that authorized parties, namely covered entities and business associates, um, are able to share uh, medical record information, uh, you know, protected health information, PHI, um, among each other for um, treatment payment operations without the consent of the patient. Right. So, you know, that allows the payers and providers or specialists and primary care uh, physicians to be able to share your and my medical record information without asking for our consent. And HIPAA allows that. Um, but it doesn't say that they're obligated to. It just says that they are allowed to. And the decision about whether they are going to is still rests with them. What 21st Century Cures does is it complements that and it says, you know what, we're going to take that one, one level further, which is to say that not only are you allowed to, you're actually obligated to, um, because it's too important, um, and we've seen you know too much variation in the availability of that information. Um, and you know, and as I said before, um, to me, this isn't a question of it being you know people who are deliberate, you know, who have a chief information blocking officer on the you know on their executive team, <laughs> whose job in life is to erect barriers to information sharing. It was much more a question of priority. It's about organizations feeling like I've got you know 53 priorities just for this year. Where is you know better interoperability or information sharing on that list? Given all the other you know priorities that I have that drive real revenues, um, you know, and so this you know from, from my perspective, you know, the, a part of what that's done is to just say to everyone, to the entire industry, you need to move this up in your priority list. That's what compliance means. 
it means that um, you need to move it up in your priority list to just get it done because we can't wait any longer. So that's, you know, that's kind of the important, uh, I think, you know, sort of, um, you know, the spirit of, you know, of what, uh, you know, what the 21st Century Cures Act is, uh, is trying to accomplish. Um, so it, with respect to your question about, you know, the status of it, so for a variety of reasons, um, you know, owing to the complexity of it, as well as for other reasons that, you know, that I, um, uh, you know, I'm not, you know, fully aware of or familiar with, um, there were, you know, there were delays in getting the rule out. Um, and uh, it was delayed twice because of the pandemic, um, you know, in the, in the previous administration. Um, but, you know, we came in, the applicability date was April 5th, and we said, you know, some of the, many of the issues that we encountered during the pandemic were related to the kinds of things that the 21st Century Cures Act is trying to resolve, which is to say better instinctual availability of information among providers to be able to provide better care um, to individuals. That is something the 21st Century Cures Act is directly trying to address. And so the more we delay it, the more we're digging ourselves into a deeper hole with respect to our ability to deal with this pandemic as well as you know future pandemics. So we just need to get that going. So that's why we insisted that the April 5th date was going to hold, the applicability date absolutely had to hold. Um, another feature of it, and so that's why we put it into place and said all of us need to not all of us need to keep working. And let's just remember that there's been a long glide path to this. So you know the, the law, as I said, was passed in 2016. The draft rule came out, you know, like three and a half later, years later or something, but it was in 2019, the draft rule came out for industry comment, and then there was a final rule, and then it was delayed a number of times. So the industry has had a lot of time, you know, to look at this and to understand that this is coming. So we have the applicability date on, on April 5th. Uh, a curious part of the 21st Century Cures Act was that it named penalties for two of the three actors who are covered by information blocking. It had a unique feature, which is to say that ONC defines the policy, but the Office of the Inspector General is responsible for enforcement. So that means that ONC receives the complaints and determines at first pass whether the complaints are actually, you know, an allegation of information blocking, because we get a lot of things that actually aren't even aren't information blocking. It's not against an actor or it doesn't, um, it doesn't uh, talk about electronic health information um, or other things that are like, well, I, I understand that this is frustrating, but it's actually not information blocking. But the things that, you know, that, that, um, that appear to be information blocking, we then pass those to the Office of the Inspector General, and then they pick it up from there and they do the investigation and enforcement as they see fit. So that's, a, you know, that's one unusual aspect of the law. The other unusual aspect is that the law specified penalties for vendors EHR vendors, certified EHR vendors, and for health information networks of up to a million dollars civil monetary penalties per incident. And if you compare that to other civil monetary penalties that, that are available to OIG and OCR, um, you'll see that those are actually really high. So the Congress actually, um, you know, uh, cared a lot about this because they gave authority for very high fines, um, you know, relative to other um, types of fines. So that's, you know, it's a, it's sort of first just a, a side note, but important thing to note. But one of the things that the law specified is that the Secretary of Health and Human Services will determine what are called appropriate disincentives, um, quote unquote, um, you know, for providers who are found to be in violation of the provisions of the 21st Century Cures Act. Um, and so... You know, that's a process to determine what those appropriate disincentives are. Again, for a variety of reasons, that process was never really fully launched, um, you know, in the previous administration. Again, I don't know why, um, but, you know, but we came in, um, we uh, announced the applicability date, we stuck to the applicability date, and then we launched 
uh, a process for determining what those appropriate disincentives would be. And so that's a process that is very much underway. Um, I don't have any timelines on it, but except to say that it has got the full uh, attention as a top priority of, you know, certainly of ONC and of, you know, the Department of Health and Human Services um, to close this enforcement gap so that everyone, um, providers as well as all other actors, um, you know, know what the what the associated penalties would be. Because it's, you know, it's not fair to providers as well. I know it's penalties on them, but, you know, I hear from providers that we just want to know. We want to know what those, you know, what those, uh, what those penalties are. So, and I agree with them on that, that, it, you know, that it, uh, from a fairness perspective, we really need to get that done. So again, we, you know, in this administration, we launched that process. Um, it involves the entire agency. Um, so you, you said CMS, the law actually says the Secretary of Health and Human Services. So that's a part of the complexity of this is that the Secretary of Health and Human Services considers where appropriate disincentives could, could come from from, you know, really anywhere within HHS is, you know, is, is uh, at, you know, at the, at the broadest brush, uh, broadest brush. So, um, so that's a part of the consideration is determining, you know, how those would be, you know, sort of uh, identified and then how those would be administered and, and enforced. And then, of course, the law specifies that it has to be using existing authorities and through notice and rulemaking. So, again, we talk, you know, talked about the time that providers have here. We've had all the run up to this. Um, but then, as you noted, um, you know, Daniel, OIG, has its rule, its draft rule out there that it hasn't finalized. So that's, you know, yet a little bit more time. Of course, you know, they'll determine when, you know, they when they will start their enforcement, um, uh, you know, uh, enforcement um, processes and how far back that will look. That I'll leave that to the final rule for them to determine. But then for the appropriate disincentives, that by law has to go through notice and rulemaking as well, which as we know is draft rule, final rule, public comment, all of that. So there's still, you know, still a lot ahead of us. Um, but just want, you know, you and everyone to be assured that we are on it uh, fully, and uh, you know, we'll hopefully have more to share uh, very soon on, you know, what the timelines for that uh, are going to be. Well, Mickey, thanks for the update on that. And you know, as you were describing the, you know, the implementation status of the 21st Century Cures Act, you know, you said, you know, we need better instinctual availability of information to providers to better care for patients. And as we wrap up our conversation today, I wanted to also talk about making information more available to patients as well. You know, uh, I know the ONC is looking to empower patients with access to their health information. And there's been a lot of great stuff happening in the API world driven by the march of technology and certainly driven by regulations that say providers and EHR vendors have to have these APIs available. But there's still variation, you know, due to the large percentage of proprietary APIs that prevent a lot of these upstart app developers and technology disruptors to scale their investments since they have to develop a you know, an Epic solution and a Cerner solution and a Meditech solution and so forth. So as I understand, by the end of 2022, you know, we're going to have a requirement that EHR vendors support a particular technical specification for an API to make it an open industry specification. And the FHIR API standards will play an, an important role in patient empowerment since the new API standard deadline for EHR vendors is enacted at the end of the year. And at that point, you know, I'm assuming we're going to see more apps develop so patients will have an opportunity to do things with that data other, you know, rather than just download it to their phone. So, um, you know, as we, you know, finish up our conversation today, I just wanted to see if you could provide some perspective on, you know, how do we get EHR vendors to make these open APIs available? And ultimately, once the app ecosystem is developed and scaled in response to those open APIs, how do we engage patients? to take advantage of the innovation opportunity in order to improve their own health? 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, great question, great perspective. Thank you. So um, the first thing related to the HR vendors um, uh, who, you know, I work with and have great relationships with, but, uh, you know, I, I guess I would just say that the best way to do that is for um, their customers, the providers, and, you know, the, the other vendors who are you're working with them, the business associates who rely on the EHR vendors that are purchased by their by their customers, um, the provider organizations, to pound the table for certification. So um, the, the certification deadline that, you know, that you just alluded to, which is by the end of by the end of 2022 is a comply by date. It's not, um, ONC is able to certify anyone who wants to certify their fire APIs today. Um, we've, you know, we've had that available since, uh, you know, since May, I think. Um, so that is available today. Um, and unfortunately, because of all the delays, you know, that I was alluding to before, that date got pushed out to the end of 2022. There's nothing I can do to bring that in. But what I can do is encourage every single provider out there to go to their vendor and say, I actually want that now. I, I want to know what your certification plans are. I encourage you to go and get yourself certified now so that we have the ability to have that fire API today and not have to wait to the last possible minute, um, you know, of the end of 2022. Um, so that's the first thing. I mean, I think that's, you know, everything that we can do from ONC perspective, we are, you know, um, to working with the vendors, talking to them about the importance of doing it. But again, you know, I don't have any more levers than that, um, you know, with the HR vendors. Um, but market demand, I think, is really important. And I know, um, you know, if you're just a loan provider sitting in your large hospital system using one of the big enterprise vendor solutions, you feel like your voice uh, may not, you know, may not have an impact, but it's just like any other market in any other sector, it is the aggregation of demand um, that gets the supply side to move. And so I think that's a, you know, that's a key part of it. And I would say that the, the folks uh, involved in Combo Care are in some ways the sophisticated um, users and the sophisticated voices for that demand. Um, and so being able to articulate what, you know, the importance of being able to do that and how, um, you know, if you're a vendor, for example, in the populational management space or you're an accountable care organization, being able to communicate to your customers, here is what will happen if we had a standardized fire API today. Here's how costs would be reduced. Here's how we would have greater functionality than we're able to provide you today. Here's how we would have more access to data because we're not having to build custom interfaces to all these places. Here's how we would be able to roll out a set of apps that connect you and your care managers directly with patients in ways that you're not able to do today because we don't have the availability of those fire APIs. So being able to talk to their customers about here are the things that we'll be able to do once we have those fire APIs and the sooner we can get those, the better, I think is a, is a really important um, part of it. Um, with respect to the patient side of it, I think it's a, you know, I think it's a great and really open question in my mind. And, and the reason I say it's an open question, it's, it's not clear to me how, you know, I'm, how much do patients want to be engaged in all of this? <laughs> and I would just guess, you know, I see five names here on the, you know, on the, um, on my screen of, you know, of those uh, involved in this podcast. Um, and I would say that we'd have five different views on how much we want to be engaged. I, for example, myself, now maybe, you know, I think it's also fundamentally related to your health status. So if I were to get a chronic condition or, you know, a, a some kind of very serious disease tomorrow, my perspective on this could change entirely. But from where I sit today, I just want to make sure that my providers have access to the information um, on my medical records so that when I go to that other provider, they've got the information. I don't really want to be in the middle of it myself. And I don't really have a great interest in, you know, sort of apps that allow me to download my data and do a whole bunch of things. But 
that that also doesn't mean that we don't have an obligation to make sure that those who want that have every opportunity to have that, that information available. So that's why ONC is pushing very hard to say that patients need to have the opportunity to get all of the information that they are entitled to get um, by right, you know, by law. Um, HIPAA says they have a right of access to all that information. And I would point out to the information that they paid for um, through their healthcare premiums um, and increasingly through their co-insurance and their co-payments and all of that. Although, you know, the market is very diffuse from those purchasing decisions. At the end of the day, it's individuals like you and me who are paying for that information. And we're also, for that reason, entitled to get that information on our terms, um, not on the terms of, you know, of, of providers or others. So, um, yeah, so I think that that's you know important an important foundational construct that everyone needs to have the ability the availability or the ability to get that information. To me, the you know the the way to appeal to patients and engage patients is um, to create um, an environment where those apps those innovators come in from inside healthcare and increasingly my hope from outside of healthcare um, who have more experience in the consumer world um, to be able to come in with apps and novel applications that make patients want to be able to have that healthcare app on their phone, just like they want to have their TikTok app. Um, and, you know, and once you've done that, then you're not asking the question of, you know, how do I engage patients? You've engaged patients because you've created something compelling for them to be able to, you know, to be able to do with their information. Right now, um, you know, as much as we're, you know, we need to crawl before we can run, obviously. So we, you know, first say, well, the first thing is the access to the information so that you can download it. But if any, as anyone's experienced, you know, you can, you can through an API now, through a Fire-based API using your Apple um, health record and in the common health, uh, you know, Android alternative, you can download your medical record information. But for the most part, that's a dead end. It's like, well, I've got it now. Now what do I do with it? <laughs> it's only when I have apps that can access that information under appropriate terms and do things that I really want to be able to do with that information um, that, you know, that, that really drive me and compel me to, you know, to download that information in the first place. So I think that's what we're all waiting for. That's what I'm hoping everything we're doing with respect to, you know, sort of encouraging, uh, you know, the market to move forward to having the standards base that creates a competitive level playing field for the app developers to come in and create those compelling apps is what's going to, you know, be the ultimate uh, sell to uh, to individuals and patients. Well, Mickey, I just can't thank you enough for spending time with us today. I think we covered so much ground and you, you truly have this vision for health IT and advancing interoperability. I wanted to thank you for your service to our country and our industry as we figure this all out. And health information technology is really going to catalyze this movement to value-based care and improve population health outcomes and really be a, a vehicle to which we can mitigate the, the risk of uh, health disparities and create a better tomorrow. So again, thank you for sharing, you know, your vision and the work that you're doing with the ONC. And it's been a great pleasure to spend time with you today on the podcast, just, you know, talking about all the great work that's coming out of the Office of the National Coordinator. Well, well, thank you, Eric and Daniel. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for your, for your great questions. I very much enjoyed the discussion and uh, look forward to uh, continuing the dialogue. It's our pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks, Mickey. Arcadia is dedicated to happier, healthier lives for all. They transform data into powerful insights that deliver results. Through their partnerships with the nation's leading health systems, payers, and life science companies, they're growing a community of innovation to improve care, maximize value, and confront emerging challenges.